good to be back in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Uh, just a quick bit of information for you. Um, starting this week, uh, probably tomorrow night, I will be sending out an email to all the parents, and it will include my exact sermon notes that I used to teach you from. And um, it will also have a link to the Surge podcast. There's going to be some um, application at the bottom of my notes, just some things to try to take you a little bit deeper, to try to guide you a little bit further in your personal time of study and devotion. And it's going to kind of help you to, to stay linked with this message and give you something to do with it um, as you go home. So that's the purpose behind it is, is for us to take what we learn here and to take it home. It's going to help establish that discipline. That's our focus. That's what we want. We want you guys to reach a place where, where you just simply desire to obey and put into action exactly what you are learning from God's Word. Amen? Amen. So that will be a resource that is available to you. You can use it if you'd like. You don't have to use it. Do with it whatever you will. Amen. Uh, let's just uh, go ahead and pray before we get started tonight, Lord Jesus. Thank you for this night. Thank you for bringing us all together here in one place and in one accord. God, I pray that you would open up our hearts to hear from you today. God, I can share all of the information in the world, but unless you open up our hearts and our minds to understand, we will receive no revelation. God, I pray that there would be revelation in this room tonight and that we would be equipped with your word and we would grow as a result. We love you. We praise you. We thank you, Father, for all things. Amen. Well, if you remember, last week we began our series, The Lord is My Shepherd, with John chapter 10. And before that, we actually preluded it with the story of the blind man. Now, the Pharisees were really upset when Jesus healed this blind man, in particular because he healed him on the Sabbath. And so they would pester this blind man with relentless questioning, so much so that the once blind man would finally admit that he thought that Jesus was from God. And the Pharisees were so upset with him, they threw him out of the temple and he was banned from ever entering into it again. We learned about how Jesus heard this news and he would go up to this blind man that, who, who he opened up his physical eyes and he would actually open up the blind man's spiritual eyes and he would reveal himself to him for who he really was. And then Jesus makes this crucial statement at the end of John chapter 9. For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. The Pharisees were very arrogantly quizzing Jesus with this question after he made, he made that statement. And they said, are we also blind? Jesus responded, because you say that we see, your sin remains. So we kicked off with that story, and with that in mind, we started to unpack the contrast between thieves and robbers and shepherds. We also read about how Ezekiel prophesied from God in chapter 34 of God's frustration with the shepherds who used and abused God's people. In this prophecy, God said that he would come down one day and he would shepherd his own sheep, no longer leaving it up to the Pharisees who were looking out only for their well-being rather than the people's well-being. We also learned about how the nature of the sheep and about, about how they would walk by faith and not by sight. We learned that sheep have tremendous peripheral vision for seeing all the dangers that are around them, 
but they have a tough time focusing on what's standing right in front of them. That being said, they rely heavily on hearing the voice of their shepherd and following that voice. And we know that we must do the same. We must not focus on the distractions of this world, but on hearing and following Jesus. If you remember this, say amen. 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 Lastly, we came to the realization that everyone in our story really was blind spiritually. We said... Uh, what set the Pharisees and the blind man apart was not their physical condition, but it was their spiritual condition and that spiritual condition of their heart. The blind man's heart was softened with humility, and so he could see and receive revelation from Jesus. But the Pharisees' hearts were what? They were hardened with what? Pride. They were very prideful. They thought that they had all the information. They thought they had it all figured out. And as a result, they received no spiritual revelation of who Jesus was. But there was one Pharisee found in Scripture who did receive revelation. And that came when Jesus appeared unto Saul in a blinding light, casting him or causing him to rely solely on hearing the words of Jesus rather than persecuting Jesus. No longer would Saul hear the voice of a supposed blasphemer, but Paul would now hear the voice of his shepherd, Jesus Christ. And quite the opposite of Paul's conversion, the Pharisees that we find in our text for tonight were still blinded by their pride. They had absolutely no understanding of what Jesus' parable meant. So Jesus decides to show them a little grace, and he continues his dialogue a little further to try to explain to these Pharisees and give them a chance at a revelation of who he is. And so we'll pick up our story in the book of John, chapter 10, and verse 7. It says, Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly. Now that term, most assuredly, is translated in your King James Bibles as verily, verily. The modern translation of that would be truly, truly. And what we know about Scripture is that when a word is repeated, it's a very important emphasis on what's being talked about. So what Jesus is trying to convey to us tonight, and what he was trying to convey to those Pharisees, was this. That this is truth, so you need to listen up. Listen to these next few words that I say. He's trying to get their attention. And so he says, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now, there's a very important part of our text that cannot go unnoticed. This specific statement is made seven times in the book of John. And each time John is quoting Jesus as saying, I am, followed by the door or the good shepherd and there's a few other statements that, that Jesus would say in, in other chapters. The reason why this statement is so interesting is because it finds its roots deep within the Old Testament. Approximately 1,500 years before Jesus would walk the earth, Moses encountered God at a burning bush. At this inconsumable burning bush, God would give Moses strict instructions for leading the Jews on a mass exodus out of Egypt's slavery. When God finished his instructions, Moses would ask this question in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, 
The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That statement, I am who I am, is not as simple as it looks on the surface because there's a very powerful meaning behind it. I am literally means to be. And this is actually where we get God's name for Yahweh, which is also translated in your Bibles as Lord, which means self-existent one. It's a very open-ended statement, and it's like this on purpose. God is saying, I just simply exist, period, end of conversation. You can't find where I begin, and you will not be able to find where I end. I just simply am. So whenever Jesus makes this statement in John, he's not describing himself as a door or just as a shepherd. He's certainly not saying he's the second member of a committee of gods that are all unified together equally to make decisions. He's letting everyone know that he is more than a man, that he's more than flesh and blood. He's letting them know that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That he is the almighty God that Moses spoke to back at the burning bush. He even goes as far as saying, before Abraham was, I am. Now to a lot of Jewish people, that could have been a very offensive statement. Because they held Abraham in the highest regard. He was the father of their faith. To them, that's where everything began. But really, Jesus is saying, I existed before him. You began with me. Revelation 1.8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus was and is and will continue to be Almighty God. No person, no false doctrine, no fresh enlightenment, nothing from this world will ever take that away from him. Jesus just is. Now this verse brings to our attention a question that we must answer tonight. Why do we need a door? If, if you recall from last week, we see that the shepherd enters through the door, going in and out of the sheepfold. Now the sheepfold was a courtyard-like structure. It had high stone walls that were built up. And it had a, oftentimes a roof that was over the top of it with different branches, leaves, briars, and so on. And there was a doorkeeper that would watch over the doorway of this sheepfold. And he was there to determine the legitimate shepherds from the fake shepherds or thieves and robbers. We learned that you could not enter any other way than through the door. Well, Jesus continues this theme at the end of verse 7 and carries it through verse 9 where he says, I am the door of the sheep. Verse 8, all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. There's a familiar statement. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Now help me do the math for a moment, okay? Work with me on this. 
There's only one God. Amen? And that God robed himself in flesh as Jesus Christ. And that one God is now tying his self-existent identity to this statement that he is the door. So there's one God in one man, and that man is saying he is the door to our salvation. How many ways are there to find salvation? Go ahead and answer it. One. There's only one way. Now, there's a common belief today that all religious roads will ultimately lead back to the God over our universe. But according to scripture, that belief system is 100% false. All religions can't lead back because there's only one that is circled around this person, Jesus Christ. Jesus is clearly stating here that he is the only way. He is the door and you must enter by him. Now, this isn't the only place in scripture where this is found, but it's also found in John chapter 14, verse 6. Where Jesus says, once again, we have a familiar statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I want to make a connection here between John 14 and 6 and John 10 and 9. Those terms by me and through me are the same Greek word. It, it's stated dia. It means through, on account of, or because of. Word helps says it like this, back and forth, or all the way across. And it's also interesting to note that it is the root for the English word diameter, which means across to the other side. So when you measure the diameter of something, you are going from one end to the other. You're going from the beginning and you're measuring to the end. Hebrews 12 and 2 says that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. So when we take all of this information into account, what we learn is that Jesus is first of all existent. The Bible says he's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. Next we see that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Thirdly, we see that when we enter by him or through him, that means it is because of him or on account of him. And since he is the author and the finisher of our faith, he will lead us across the entire diameter of our life. He will see you all the way across to the other side of eternal life from beginning to end. So in short, our salvation journey is totally, utterly, and solely dependent upon Jesus. Now, there is only one way to heaven. You can't ride the coattails of your parents. You can't rely on the faith of your pastor. You can't perform well enough in school or make enough money in the workplace. There is only one way, and his name is Jesus. It's not Buddha. It's not Allah. It's not LGBTQIA and whatever other letters you want to add to it. It's not an Xbox. It's not a relationship. It's not your phone. There's only one way. And the sooner that we stop treating our distractions 
like they are the way and start treating Jesus like he is the way, the better off we will be. Just imagine what your schools, what this youth group, and what this church would look like if we treated Jesus truly like he was the only way. Proverbs 16 and 25 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. You could gather all of the greatest thinkers, all the greatest theologians, the, the best engineers of this world today, and our small and feeble minds could never think up a successful secondary plan to salvation. It's impossible. The unfortunate thing is that we live as if we could. And that's a dangerous way to live. Paul says in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Now, one might look at this verse and say, well, if his judgments are so unsearchable and his ways are beyond our comprehension, then why even bother living for God? Why even bother? But that's the point. If my ways lead to death, like Proverbs 16 says, then why wouldn't I rely on the one whose mind is so beyond us that we couldn't even begin to scratch the surface of his wisdom and his knowledge? It's not about how unsearchable his ways are. It's about how marvelous, magnificent, and powerful the mind of God is. Why on earth would you lean on your own understanding when you can trust in him? Psalms 145 and 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways. I don't know about you, but I would prefer the way of righteousness rather than the way of death, no matter what the cost. So with that in mind, what happens when we find this door? Back to verse 9 again. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. You will find salvation, but the key phrase I want to look at here is in and out. Go in and out. The Net Bible translator notes state that go in and out can be an idiom. Does everyone know what an idiom is? All right, well, for those of you who don't know, an idiom is something that uses uh, uh, certain words, but it means something completely different than what the structure of those words are. So, like, it's raining cats and dogs. Does it actually rain cats and dogs? No, it's raining really hard. So if you said it's raining cats and dogs and translated that into another language, guess what? They're going to look at that and say, crazy Americans. <laughs> That's what they're going to be thinking. But there's more of a meaning behind it in the background that you don't see. And so go in and out is an idiom. And it stands for living or conducting oneself in relationship to a community, to live with or among. Luke 9 and 4 uses the same words in the context of safety and security that is provided by a given household. So in essence, what we can learn from this tonight is that the liberty of going in and out and finding pasture and salvation 
is a freedom that can only come when your relationship with Jesus is not an occasional event, but when it is a daily lifestyle. Listen to that definition again. Living or conducting oneself in relationship to a community, to live with or among. You're living it so sincere that it's as if you are under the same roof. There is power, there is protection, there is sustainability when you live under a roof. It's so real, so tangible, and so connected that it's as if you are a part of the same family. And that's exactly how Scripture describes us when we find Jesus. John 1 and 12 says this, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in him. When you believe in Jesus, you are now a part of his eternal family. And as a result, you will be fed and you will be protected, which just so happens to be the definition of shepherd. So just like his sheep, we will be able to go in and out and find pasture because we will be a part of this greater community. Acts 121 refers to this as well. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. It's no mystery to us that Jesus literally lived with the disciples, right? The disciples experienced this in the physical, and it was meant to be a reality for us in the supernatural. To follow the pattern that they set before us. To hear, to follow, to pray, to endure persecution, to hang on his every word, to repent when you make a mistake, to see miracles, signs, and wonders, to teach and preach the word, to make disciples, and to draw spiritual strength from him, to just simply exist with him. Drawing to our final verse to tonight, for tonight, John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. In case you haven't noticed, I have yet to answer the first question that was proposed tonight. Why do we need a door? Well, to answer this question, let's take a step back in time to Genesis chapter 3. That dark and horrible day when Eve was deceived into eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge and of good and evil. Bringing for the first time into the world the depressing consequences of sin. From this day forward, man would fight the curse of his sinful nature against the thief who came to steal Eve's innocence, to kill her mortal body, and to destroy her connection with Almighty God. We pick up towards the end, the end of God pronouncing his judgment in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed a cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. 
Now, this tree that Eve ate of was also known as the tree of life. Leading up to verse 22, God just spoke the consequences of death over Adam and Eve. Knowing the sinful nature that has now entered into this perfect creation, he has to invoke one additional consequence. He has to drive them out of his presence and out of the garden. God knew if this tree were enticing before, it would be all the more enticing now for Adam to counteract the consequence of death with the fruit that could bring eternal life. God knew that Adam would reach for that fruit again and again if he remained in the garden. So God drives them out to the east. No longer would they be able to live in paradise. No longer could they walk with their maker in the cool of the day. No longer could they hear the comfort of his voice. They were completely separated from their shepherd. So why do we need a door? Why don't you stand with me? Because at the fall of man, the door of eternal life was closed. After driving man out, God would set up a doorkeeper, if you will, to watch over the way to the tree of life, to keep out thieves and robbers looking to steal an opportunity at salvation. The door that led to this tree of life would remain closed for thousands of years to come, but that is until the way, the truth, and the life would one day return and dwell among his people. Building relationships, providing food and protection, healing, restoring, and saving his people, he came to reopen the way to the tree of life. Except this time, it wasn't a tree located in the midst of a beautiful garden. This tree sat atop a wretched old hill called Calvary. This tree did not bear fresh, luscious fruit, but it bore the sins of all humanity. Instead of giving eternal life, it would require one's life. This tree was the cross, and it was meant to steal, to kill, and to destroy the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who hung from it. But this was not just any other man hanging from this cross. This man was God's secret weapon, the self-existent one, the man Christ Jesus who came to take away the sins of the world and to reopen the way for all of us who would believe on him for generations to come, giving us access once again to the tree of the life. He is the one who died, was buried, and rose again on the third day so that way we may, like John describes it, have life and that we may have it more abundantly. That word abundantly means all around more than what you expected. Whatever the most perfect, marvelous, wonderful life you could ever think of, this will exceed that. It will exceed your wildest imaginations. No picture could do it justice. No illustration on a canvas or words on a page could properly depict it. So my question for you tonight builds off the question that we answered last week. This time, it's the whole verse. Can you honestly say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want? 
Why would you want life any other way than to spend eternity with Jesus? Why would you even consider anything less than him? Any other way, any other opportunity than him? The one who paved the way with his blood so that we could have life and that we could have it more abundantly. So that we could dwell in the presence of God for all of eternity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you, Jesus. Why? <laughs>